in Asia. And so there is probably, according to some Persian historians, there's probably 50 million people. That doesn't sound like much to us, but in the day, it's a lot of people in a kingdom. And, uh, and again, these, these Persians had conquered the, the Babylonians. And so we, we find ourselves under Persian rule. So you remember there's King Cyrus and then King Darius. And, and actually the king in this story, his name, well, he's known as Xerxes, if you look at history, but the Bible records his name as Ahasuerus. And, um, and so what, here's what we, before we get in, what we don't know is who wrote the book of Esther. Esther probably didn't write the book of Esther. It might have been Mordecai. We're going to get, you're going to be introduced to Mordecai in just a few minutes. But it could have been, it could have been Ezra. Uh, it could have been Nehemiah. We, we just don't know. But what I would argue is that it's somebody who understood Persian culture, which may explain why there's no mention of God anywhere. Because if you know anything about Persian culture, as, they, as the Persians wrote, it was, well, you would never mention the name of a deity in your writing. So it very well could have been somebody who was steeped in Persian culture. We, we, we just don't know. But behind the story, the real author is God. And behind this richly played out maze of events, we're going to see divine providence. Well, key elements. There's always a good character. There's always, you know, good, strong characters in movie. And this, in our, in our story today, we've got four main characters that we're going to look at. Uh, Ahasuerus, he's the king at the time. And then he's got his, uh, we're going we're gonna to be introduced to Haman. We're going we're gonna to refer to Haman as wicked Haman. He's, he's the bad guy. He's, um, he's the one that the whole plot builds around and all of the tension. And then we have well, the main character, if you will, the name of the book is Esther. And Esther is actually a, a Jewish orphan, uh, is, which is quite remarkable um, when you th think about how the story plays out. And then her cousin, Mordecai. And Mordecai, well, you'll, um, you'll learn more about him. Every movie has a remarkable plot, and the, the, uh, the story of Esther is no different. There is there is this well-developed plot full of conflict and tension. And, and the main conflict centers around evil, wicked Haman and his desire and his plan to annihilate all of the Jews, all of them. So that means last week, the Jews that returned to Jerusalem, you remember to rebuild the temple, including them. Haman's plan is to wipe out the entire Jewish race in the kingdom. And, but there's also going to be a wonderful conflict resolution. The climax of the story is going to involve Esther's bravery and revealing her Jewish identity and, and uh, to the king, exposing Haman's evil intentions. And, uh, and then we're going to see Haman's downfall. There's going to be, like any good movie, it arouses your emotions. And as we work through the text today, don't be surprised if your emotions are, are aroused. You're going to go from fear and suspense during the plot to destroy the Jews to, well, relief and joy at the story's resolution. Also, want to make sure, don't miss, every good movie has just rich ironies. 
And this story is no different. There is surprising twists, turns, surprises. You're going to go, didn't see that coming. And probably one of the most important things, and don't miss this, this is true for the entire, our entire 100,000-foot view over the Old Testament. This story today is a drama within a much bigger drama. And we don't want to miss the bigger drama going on. You say, well, what's the bigger drama going on? Back, all the way back in Genesis 12, God makes a promise to Abraham. He made it again in Genesis 15. He made it again to Abraham in Genesis 17. And you remember the promise that he made. I'm just going to, I'll just quickly, I'm going to quickly read from Genesis 17. In verse 7, he says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. God made a promise to Abraham. And then, you remember, we get to, we're working through the story, we get to the kingdom of David, and God makes another promise. It's called a covenant. And he made a covenant with David. And he said to David in 2 Samuel 12, he said, David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. You see, both of these promises have an arc and they find their fulfillment in Christ. And so don't, don't lose that, that, that drama within the drama because if what happens, if Haman gets his way in the story of Esther, God's promise to Abraham, God's promise to David, the coming Messiah doesn't happen. So it leads us to the main point. If you just want to check out now, here's the main point of today, that the sovereign, invisible hand of God places Esther and Mordecai in positions of influence to preserve his promises, to, pre to, to preserve his people, and to preserve his promised one. This is going to have a great ending. Every story, you know, I love a movie with a good ending. I hate a movie with a bad ending. This has got a great ending. And there's a hero. And don't miss this. The hero is not Esther. The hero is not Mordecai. Oh, they're, they're going to demonstrate their faith, all right. But the hero of this story is God. So, really, if we're going to boil it down, we could say that Esther, the book of Esther, answers this, this question. Will the God of Israel keep his promises? That's really what we're looking at. So let's do this. Let's, shall we jump into scene one? And scene one... Starts in chapter one, and uh, what we what we we pick up here in uh, in scene one is just royal rev revelry, royal revelry. So we pick up in year three of King Ahasuerus's reign. So he's already been reigning, and uh, he is at war with the Greeks on and off. Um, his father was at the was in war with the Greeks. If, if you remember, you if some of you are marathon runners, and maybe perhaps you remember the Battle of Marathon. That's where the whole marathon uh, race comes from. His father is the one who fought and lost to the Greeks the Battle of Marathon. So anyway, we we pick up, and there is this major feast going on in the kingdom, and Ahasuerus is 
He is throwing this party of parties. It lasts for six months. Can you imagine? And everybody's there. He's, the scripture tells us that he's over 127 different provinces. And so the story picks up and all the governors, everybody who's anybody comes to this, this six-month feast. And it's the feast of feasts. You say, what were they there for? Well, the scripture doesn't tell us. Um, some Persian historians have implied that maybe there was a war planning going on that he was putting together his plan to go and conquer the Greeks. But what's fascinating is it says that his army was there. And history tells us that there was over two and a half, he had over two and a half million foot soldiers in his army. So again, this is a huge party. But here's what the text does tell us. If you jump into verse four, it says he showed, part of why everybody got, he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days. Well, the feast comes to an end, and then there's a seven-day feast that follows. And this is for all of the people in the capital. And so they all come in, and uh, they are served the best of the king's wine. And then we're told in verse 18 that at the same time this is happening, he's throwing this big drunken party. The queen is having a, well, she's having her own feast. And uh, it's interesting. The text tells us that at the end of, on the seventh day, when the king was married, that means that he was drunk, he, well, he asked for his king, his queen. So her name is Vashti. And so he gives orders for Queen Vashti to bring her, to bring her to the main feast because he wants to show her off. He wants to, it, it, the text tells us that she was that she was beautiful, and she was lovely to look at. But she doesn't want to come. She refuses to come. Text doesn't tell us why she refused to come, but this makes the king, you can imagine, but the text tells us he was angry. And so what he does is he goes and he, he, he asks his advisors, because every king has a bunch of advisors, and the advisors say, oh, king, this is worse than you think. This isn't just about you. Look at verse 15. Um, he asked them, according to the law, what should be done to Queen Vashti because she hasn't performed the command of the king? And uh, they, they said to him, you know, <laughs> the queen's behavior, I'm in verse 17, will be made known to all the women in the kingdom, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she didn't come. So he said, there was going to be rebellion. They're telling him there's going to be rebellion throughout the kingdom. Here's what you need to do. What you need to do is you need to strip her of her crown and give it to someone else. You need to get rid of her as queen. You need to send a message throughout the kingdom that this won't be tolerated. Well, we come to the end of our first scene, and uh, it moves us to scene two, chapter two. And... Uh, Royal beauty contests. So here's what happens. There's actually a gap of time between chapter one and two. You don't, it's not really clear there, but there's probably two or a three-year gap. He probably goes off to war uh, against the Greeks, comes back, and by now his anger has subsided. He's had some time to think about it. And uh, his advisors say, 
It's time to have a royal beauty contest. Here's what we need to do. We need to go throughout your kingdom, and we need to find you another queen. And so they proceeded to work through the entire kingdom, 127 provinces, and begin to look for a new queen. It's interesting. You think about how many... Again, if there was 50 million people in the kingdom, now we don't know, so we're, we're, we're making some con- just some guesses here, right? But let's say there's 50, we think there's 50 million people in the kingdom. Let's say half of those are women, 25 million. And let's say of the 25 million, let's just, let's stay, let's be conservative. Let's say 10% of the 25 million would be young virgins. In, you know, that would be part of this, well, beauty contest. Two and a half million. So this goes throughout the kingdom, and they, they begin to look for somebody to replace the queen. And now we're introduced to Mordecai. Mordecai is living, Mordecai's Jewish refugee living in, in Susa, and what we're told is that his family, his parents, um, were taken captive during... Uh, the Babylonian captivity, so roughly 586 B.C. And now he's living as a refugee, and he is raising his cousin, and her name is Esther. And they're living in the... In fact, the, script, the, the, the Scripture tells us that Esther's parents had died, and here's what it says in verse 7. He was bringing up Hadassah, that's her Jewish name, but... Her Persian name is Esther, uh, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman, here's what it says about her. It's interesting. She, had, she was young, young woman. She had a beautiful figure, and she was lovely to look at. Well, it's probably not a surprise where the story's headed. <clears throat> she gets picked. Now, if you can imagine, and there's just no way we can create the tension, and, but just how hard this must have been for her to be taken captive and be brought to the king's palace and be put in his harem. He had at least two harems. And, uh, but one of the things that when she was taken, her cousin Mordecai made her promise, don't tell anybody you're Jewish. And so, um, well, the story goes on and it's, um, she is, she's put into the king's harem and she is and, and, and her and all of the, um, one of the Greek historians talked about there was probably 400 women. So let's say two and a half million selected down to 400. And she, um, these 400 women are prepared for a year. And so there is all kinds of preparation that takes place. We see that in verse 12 of chapter 2. And, um, and then here's what would happen. If you're in this harem, you would go into the king in the evening. And then the next morning you would come out, and that would be your last time with the king unless the king requested you again by name. And so you go in a virgin and you come out a concubine. I just want you to feel the tension there. And this is Esther. And so it's interesting. It came time for Esther to go in, and, um, and then she came out the next morning, and it tells us in verse 17, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head. And then in verse 18, there's another feast. This king liked to party, 
And there's another feast. It was called Esther's Feast, and they had a feast for Esther. And, uh, well, then a little bit of time passes, and uh, Mordecai, back to our, her cousin Mordecai, Mordecai has access to the, well, to the palace. And Mordecai's in the palace, and he overhears a couple of the king's bodyguards um, conspiring against the king. And so Mordecai gets word to Esther. Esther tells the king. The king investigates. And these two trusted advisors, bodyguards to the king, are put to death. And this is important. Verse 23, it says, And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. So what happened and with Mordecai, all of that was written down in the king's journals. Well, the curtain sets on scene two, and now the curtain rises on scene three. And we discover a royal scheme and a royal decree. Now, this is much later. This is, remember we started in year three of Ahasuerus' reign. We are now in year 12. And you'll see this in a little bit. There are time stamps along the way. So verse 3 opens, after these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman. We are now introduced to the bad guy. We're introduced to mean, wicked Haman. And what happens is Haman gets promoted to number two in the kingdom. He's, we'll call him the, he's, he's kind of the, uh, we call him the vice president or the vice regent. But it's interesting, here's one thing that it says, and I wish we had time to really unpack this, but it, it says that he promoted Haman, the ag... I have just, sometimes my brain doesn't connect to my mouth. The agatite. And the, the agite. And you say, you know, that's, that's familiar, but why would, why would the text mention that? Here's why I would mention that. Maybe you, you go back to 1 Samuel. You remember when Saul, Samuel told Saul, God told Samuel to tell Saul to go take out the Amalekites. And the Amalekites had a king. His name was Agag. And Saul did not take out the king. He didn't, he was told to kill the king, kill everybody. And Saul didn't do it. And so what happened was, you remember, um, Luke walked us through this, you know, um, well, Samuel takes Saul's sword and goes and takes out the king. But apparently, either the queen was allowed to live or Agag had some children that were allowed to live. But we get to this point, and what we hear about wicked Haman is that he's a descendant of Agag. Don't miss this. He, he knew. He hated the Jews. He walked into this story with a hatred for the Jews. He knows the story of how Saul took out his people. Well, here's what we learn about Haman in scene three. Haman gets promoted, and as part of the promotion, People in the kingdom are commanded to bow to him, kind of like you would a king. And Mordecai's in the court, and Mordecai won't bow to Haman. And Haman hates it. It drives him nuts. 
and it begins to destroy him from the inside out. And people went to Malachi and said, why, don't, why do you transgress the king's command? Verse 3, um, meaning, why don't you bow? And uh, in this, they find out he's a Jew. And Haman, it, here's what we're told, here's the plot begins to develop. Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, through the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Well, Haman then goes to his magicians, his sleuthsayers, and they begin to, well, roll the dice because they're going to, they're, what they're up to trying to do is figure out, okay, which day, what's going to be the day that we're going to take out the Jews throughout the entire kingdom? And they begin to cast lots. Um, it, says in, it says in the text in verse 7, they cast per, per is lots, lots are like dice, and uh, they begin to cast them. And they determined a date. This is the date that throughout the kingdom, all of the Jews are going to be destroyed. Again, there's a drama within a drama here. And it's 11 months. So they're doing this in month number one. And in the 11th month, they're going to take out the Jews. And so a decree. So interesting, Haman, being the deceptive guy he is, he's go, he goes to the king because he can't do this on his own. He needs permission. And it's interesting, he goes to the king, look at, and, and it says, he says this. Um, and we'll read the whole, whole thing, but I'm in verse uh, 7, 8. It says, um, he says to the king, yeah, verse 8, then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there's this certain people scattered abroad. He doesn't, he doesn't name them. He doesn't say Jewish people. I'm absolutely convinced. You see, King Ahasuerus knew of the Jewish people. All of the, Jew, all of the Persian kings going all the way back to Cyrus had a soft spot for the Jewish people. So why did they have a soft spot? Because, well, Proverbs 21 says, the king's heart is a stream of water in the Lord's hand, and he turns it wherever he will. It was, it, was, it was God that had softened the Persian king's heart. But this king is no different. He, he knew of the history of, of the uh, Jewish people. But anyway, Haman says there's a certain people scattered abroad. They don't obey your laws. They have their own laws. And basically, you know, they need to be annihilated. And so the king gives Haman permission. Haman writes an edict that goes out to all 127 provinces, um, all of them. And it is by, it is as fast, I mean, it's, you talk about Pony Express, they got the word out quick. And um, here's, here's what it says. Um, it says the, the uh, so I'm in, so we're in chapter three, right? Um, around verse 14. It says, uh, 13, letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instructions, here it is, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, I say 11th month, 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. So you can imagine the chaos that's going on in the capital city as well as the rest of the kingdom. And then scene three closes with these words. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Well, 
That leads us to scene four, a royal reversal. So we have this edict, a royal edict, but we're going to see a remarkable turn of events. Um, Mordecai, as you can imagine, when he learns about what's going on, he is distraught. In fact, the scriptures say that he um, changed his clothes, he put ashes all over his head, he came into the court of, of the king, and Esther hears about Mordecai coming in, and, and uh, she sends word, and she says, you know, what, what's going on? And, and so through the messenger, Mordecai communicates back to Esther, and he gives her a copy of the edict, and he, he tells her everything that has happened and how, and how Haman had had promised to the king that if the king let him do this, Haman would even give the king a bunch of money. The king said, you know, you can keep your money, but allowed him to go through with it. But uh, Mordecai is revealing all of this to Esther. And then um, as, the, uh, as the story unfolds, Mordecai then communicates with Esther. And he doesn't ask her, but the passage, the scripture says that he commanded her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. Easy enough job, no big deal. You know, you, you're the queen, you've got a relationship with the king, just go talk to him. Well, there's a problem. In the, in the, in the Persian law, everybody knew that you don't go before the king without permission. In fact, if you go to the king, if you go into the inner court, you go to the presence of the king without permission, you're killed. So this created a bit of a problem for Esther. And, uh, you know, she communicates back to Mordecai. All the king's servants and all the people of the king's province know that if a man or woman goes before the king inside the inner court without being called, there's but one law be put to death. And then Mordecai responds to Esther. And this is one of the most... This is going to be a familiar passage to you. Mordecai, they tell him what Esther said, and he sends word back to Esther. I'm in verse 13 now of chapter 4. And he says to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape more than any other Jew. You know what he's saying here? This edict is for all the Jews. If you think for a minute that, you're going to, that somehow you're going to escape this, you're mistaken. This includes you. He says, for if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. Look at his faith. He, he, I'm guessing he's thinking back to the promises of God. He's thinking back. He's rehearsing to himself that God has made promises to his people and he is faithful. But he says, Deliverance is going to come from someone else. And then he says these words. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Well, you probably know how the story plays out. Esther uh, sends word back to Mordecai and says, okay, um, I, I, want you to, I want you to fast for three days. And, and so what we don't see is any mention of prayer, but if you know anything about Jewish culture, fasting and prayer always goes together. So she and her entourage uh, for three days and, and, and Mordecai for three days 
fast and pray. And then she says these words, I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away, and he did everything that Esther had ordered him. Well, imagine the courage. On the third day, in chapter 5, it says that Esther put on her royal robes, and she goes into the presence of the king. Imagine the courage that that would have taken. Imagine the, the, the faith that that would have taken. And she goes to the king, and I, am, I would imagine she was a nervous wreck. But she goes, and instead of having her killed, the king holds out his scepter, and he says, Queen Esther, what is it? What would you like? I'll give you up to half my kingdom. I always, you, you hear that, I always wonder, if somebody asked me, you know, what do you want, I'll, you know, up to half your kingdom, I'd probably take up to half the kingdom, but she doesn't. Um, she said, if it pleases the king, why don't you and Haman come to a feast today that I have prepared for you? So the king and Haman go to a feast. And after they're done feasting, they start drinking some wine. And sometime as they're drinking wine, the king looks to Esther and says, Esther, what, what can I do for you? What do you want up to half my kingdom? And she says something really odd. She said, well, if it pleases the king, will you come back tomorrow with Haman and participate in another feast. Well, you can imagine Haman. Haman goes away and he is thrilled. I mean, this is a good day for Haman. Haman go, it says in verse 9 of chapter 5 that Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. Then he sees Mordecai at the gate, and Mordecai doesn't bow to him, and he's just that, that bitterness and that rage wells up within him. He gets home, and he, he begins to tell his wife all the splendor. He, he, he accounts for, uh, so we're in verse 11. It says, Haman recounted to them, his wife, friends, uh, all the splendor of his riches. Look at how rich I am. Look at all the number of sons. We, we learn a little bit later, he's got 10 sons. All the promotions that the king has given me and how he honors me. And, and, and he said, even the queen invited me to a feast. And then he says, but none of this is important to me as long as that Mordecai doesn't bow to me. Well, his wife gives him some, some good advice and his friends. He said, here's what you do. Quickly, build some gallows. Build a place. You, you, need, to, you need to hang, you need to kill Mordecai. So what the text says is they built a gallow 50, 50 cupids high, that's 75 feet, seven stories high. And what's interesting is chapter six, at the same time, it's nighttime, the king can't sleep. Go figure, what are the odds? And so king can't sleep, he asks his servants to bring in the records of the kingdom. And they begin to read those records to him, and here's what the king discovers. The story, now, now again, this is five years later after the event, but it's found how Mordecai had told the king about those two bodyguards five years earlier that had tried to kill him. And the king says, well, was anything done for Mordecai? Did we do anything to, 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 to reward him? And he's told no. And the king said, who's in the court right now? So it's early morning. Now, 
back to Haman. Haman, Haman's having a great day, and this is going to be a super great day because Haman is coming back, and he's got two big things on his to-do list today. Number one is, I'm going to the king to have Mordecai hung, and then I'm going to go to the queen and with the king and queen, and we're going to have a feast. Well, they, the king says, who's out in the court? And they say, well, Haman's in the court. And he says, perfect, bring in Haman. And he says, Haman, what should I do? Or what should, look, look uh, so we're in, in, in chapter 6, verse 6. So Haman comes in, the king says, what should, be done for the, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, you can see chest going out a little bit, who would the king like to honor but me? Man, that, the day is only getting better. And the king, so he says to the king, here's what you do, king. You go out and you get a, some royal robes, but not any royal robes, but these are royal robes that have already been worn by the king. And get a horse. Oh, but a, great, a horse that has been ridden, you know, that has been part of the king's um, procession. And what you do is you take the man you want to honor and you put him on the horse and you put the robes on him and you walk him through the town square and you say that this is what the king does for someone he wants to honor. Well, the king says, great idea. Go do that for Mordecai. Oh, my word. Didn't see that coming. So the text tells us that Haman did what the king commanded him, took Mordecai, put him on the horse, put the robes on him, walked him through the town square and said, this is what the king does for those he wants to honor. And the text tells us that Mordecai returns, Haman goes home. And what we, uh, what we see is that he goes home tells his wife what's happened. And his wife says to him, you know, if Mordecai's really Jewish and this is all happening, this isn't going to work out good for you. This, this is going to end poorly for you. Well, about that time, the, uh, it's time for that feast. Remember that feast? We kind of hit the pause button on that. And so what we're told is that in verse 14 of chapter 6, that while they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. Well, chapter 7 picks up with the king and Haman um, going to the feast with Esther, and it plays out much like the uh, previous day. They have a feast, the feast ends, they drink some wine, and the king says to Esther, Esther, what is it that I can do for you up to half my kingdom? And Esther says, O oh, king, I and my people have been sold. In fact, she says, I'm in verse 3, um, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request, for we have been sold, but not just sold for slavery. She says, I and my people to be destroyed, to be killed and to be annihilated. She said, if we had been merely sold as slaves, it wouldn't have been a big deal. I, I, I would have kept silent, for our affliction is nothing to be compared with the loss to the king. And the king is furious. And he says to Esther, who would do such a thing? Now, you can, can, you, can you imagine? She looks 
And she says, a foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman, this is a good day turned bad. And Haman was terrified before the king and queen. Well, the king gets up, goes to his garden. He comes back a few minutes later. And what does he see? But he sees Haman begging Esther. And he says, well, even he, Haman, even assault the queen in my presence in my own house. Well, one of uh, the king's servants kind of nudged him and said, hey, Haman built these, these gallows for Mordecai. And the king says, then go hang Haman. And Haman is hung, and the king's wrath is abated. And the curtain falls on scene four. Scene five, the curtain comes up, and uh, we begin to see a royal dilemma. You think, royal dilemma, what could be going on? This is a good day. This is a good day for Esther. This is a good day for Mordecai. This is a good day for the people of Israel. What, what, what do you mean? In fact, verse 1 says, On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. Mordecai came before the king. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. What, what could be wrong? Well, there's one little problem. It's the problem of that edict to destroy all of the Jews. You see, once the king gives an edict in the Mede and Persian law, it cannot be revoked. And so there's still this little matter of the day that's coming when the Jews are going to be destroyed. And so she goes before the king, and what a, what a, clever, what a clever way to respond. The king's scribes are, are brought in, and um, the king gives permission for Mordecai to write out under the king's signature commands relative to this. And so instead, can't revoke it. So here's what, here's what happens. Verse 11, chapter 8. The edict basically communicated that the Jews who were in every city, they were to gather on that day to defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people, any providence that might attack them children and women included, and to plunder their goods on one day throughout the whole providence of King Ahasuerus on the 13th day of the 12th month. So in other words, an edict goes out that says, on that day, Jews, you can defend yourself. Well, that goes out swiftly. And all of a sudden, all of the, what the text tells us is that many of the governors in these 127 providences, everybody began to see the tide had turned and the winds had shifted and everybody started getting on, on the Jewish bandwagon. And, and, and what the text tells us that, um, I'm in chapter 8, right at the end it says, and many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for the fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Well, scene six, royal deliverance. So the day comes, the day of destruction, and the Jews defend themselves and kind of fast forward through this. They take out over 500 people just in the, the capital city alone as they defend themselves and fight. They take out the 10 sons of Haman, and they're hung. 
And then the text tells us that throughout the kingdom, throughout those 127 providences, 75 of those, 75,000 of those people who hated them were destroyed. Wow. What a, what a difference a day makes. Well, that leads us to our epilogue and kind of the close of the story, royal remembrance. This was a big day for the Jews, and so what the text tells us is that Esther and Mordecai, um, under the signature of a ring, sent a edict out to the entire kingdom that there would be two days of remembrance, of celebration for what took place. And um, the, I'm in verse 26 of chapter 9. Therefore, they called these days, these celebration days, Purim, P-U-R-I-M, after the term pure. You see, there's a day of remembrance. In fact, today, um, every March, Orthodox Jews all over the world still celebrate Purim. It challenges its observers to look behind the visible and recognize the redemptive hand of God in the hidden workings of history. Purim is a memorial of when the Jews receive salvation from their enemies. And by the way, salvation from their enemy is a theme that goes throughout the entire storyline of Scripture. So long after Haman is hung, Mordecai and Esther continue to flourish in the royal house of King Ahasuerus. Look at, the, uh, look at chapter 10. Against all odds, Esther, Mordecai, and the Jews have been spared. But they're not only spared, they're elevated. Chapter 10, verse 3. For Mordecai the Jew was second to King Ahasuerus and was great among the Jews and well-received by the multitude of his brethren, seeking the good of his people and speaking peace to his countrymen. Crazy story, huh? You know, as I mentioned, this is a, this is a, a drama within, within a drama. God had made promises to Abraham, to David. I wish I had time to ultimately to Christ. If you go to Galatians 3, we just don't have time to go there or we'd be really late. But if you go to Galatians 3, the promises that were made to Abraham, it wasn't made to Abraham and his offspring as in many, but Galatians 3 says that it was made to Abraham and his offspring singular, meaning Christ. So this ultimately, as I mentioned earlier, God's the hero of the story. But God's, but God's name is never mentioned. And you might say, I just don't, I don't see God's hand. It's interesting, I think it was Albert Einstein that said coincidences are God's way of staying anonymous. I'm not saying we get our theology from Einstein, but, but it's interesting. If you look at all the twists and turns in the story, you'd say, what are the odds? Or it just all the coincidences, right, that took place. The king throws a party and he asks the queen to come and she refuses. What are the odds, right, of that? Or Esther being an exiled orphan is selected out of millions of women in the kingdom to become queen. Um, when Haman plots his revenge and the dice just happen to indicate the date for exacting revenge is put out almost, almost a year. Or when Esther goes to the 
king to speak, and then she happens to put off a request for another day, right, which just happens to send Haman out by Mordecai one more time, and which just happens to cause him to recount it to his friends, and they just happen to encourage him to rebuild, to, to, to build the gallows, right? What, what are the odds? I mean, we could go on. Don't be mistaken. God's fingerprints, God's hand is everywhere. Takes us back to the point. The sovereign, invisible hand of God places Esther and Mordecai in positions of influence to preserve his promises, his people, and promise one. You see, all of this points us to Christ. We can't read this story like an Orthodox Jew would read this story because we have the rest of the story. This has a trajectory right to the cross of Christ. You say, how, how, how does that look? Well, if you think about the grand battle of God delivering his people, Christ alone achieved the victory at the cross, victory over the enemy, victory over the power of sin and death. When all hope seemed to be lost, when God didn't seem to be present, Christ wins the battle. Christ brings eternal and true liberation. Just like the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain victory over the Jews, the reverse occurred and the Jews gained victory over them. And it's the same way, it's the same way at the cross. At the cross, the enemy of the true Jew hoped to gain victory over him, but the reverse occurred and Jesus gained victory over those who hated him. So what do we do with all of this, right? What does this have to do with you and me? What can we take away from this that's going to make a difference tomorrow morning or Wednesday afternoon or, or, or Friday night? Well, there's two ways that I would think about this. And one is, who are you trusting in for salvation? If you're here this morning and you're trusting in your own works to reconcile you to God, can I love you enough to say you are sadly mistaken? Because God requires, God's holy, he requires perfect righteousness. He requires perfection. And on your best day, and on my best day, I don't know what that looks like, your best day is probably better than mine. But whatever it is, it, does, it falls infinitely short of what God requires. And so don't be fooled in thinking that you're going to come to the end of your life and somehow your good is going to outweigh your bad because that, that is a lie from the evil one himself. There's only one way to be reconciled to God and that is through the work of Christ, what Christ accomplished. And so what the Bible uses the words about repenting and believing, repenting of your sin, trusting Christ for salvation... But for most of us here, we would say, I already trust Christ in my salvation. So my, I think for us, if we've already trusted Christ for salvation, what about trusting Christ in the moments of your life? What about when you're feeling anxious or fearful? You know, when the what ifs, what if this, what if, the what ifs strike. When tragedy strikes, when that unexpected diagnosis comes. When, when you're concerned that that acquisition that's going to take place might mean you lose a job. Or maybe you've lost your job. Or when it appears that your marriage may be over. 
Or maybe you're wondering why you're not married even though you want to be. Or you're worried if, if you're ever going to get pregnant. Or you're worried if I'm going to, am I really going to be able to carry this baby to term? What are, you, what are you trusting in when you go through difficulty and it feels like God is nowhere around? When it feels like all hope is lost? When, when, when it feels you know, God cannot be seen? What does it look like? Real quick, let me give you four or five things. Number one, remember that God keeps his promises and you can trust him. You know, if the story of Esther shows us anything, is that God can be trusted. Do you, under, do, do you, we have a better understanding of who God is than Esther and Mordecai had. We have a, a more glorious and grander view of God's glory, of his faithfulness, of his goodness, of his sovereignty than Esther and Mordecai had. We have the rest of the story. We see how God is there, how God is present, how God is active to keep his promises. We see and understand in a bigger way that he will never leave us or forsake us. Number two, you and I need to act or respond in faith to his promises. It doesn't matter how you feel. It doesn't matter how you feel. You remember Christ was in the garden. Say, how did he feel? Well, it tells us he didn't feel like dying. It said, in fact, he said, Father, if there be any other way, let this cup pass before me. Nevertheless, not what I want. There's what he's wanting. He did, but he's, in spite of how he felt, he submitted himself to the will of God. It's going to be hard, right? It, it's going to take courage. Obedience takes courage. Esther shows us that. We need to have confidence in waiting on him. It doesn't matter the circumstances. God has put you where he has you today. He's at work in you. Number three, God accomplishes his plan through imperfect people. Remember that. God always, always accomplishes his plan through imperfect people. The question is not if God is using you or me. The real question is in what ways is God using me? In what ways is God using you? And how are you doing at cooperating with that? You say, you, where do you see that? Hebrews 11. We're, we're, we're getting ready. Two weeks, we're going to start a study in the book of Hebrews. And we're going to get, at some point, we're going to get to chapter 11. And I love chapter 11 because chapter 11 looks back and gives us a beautiful picture in the Old Testament of what faith looks like. And every one of those examples, as you, you just start peeling it back, are are examples of courage, are examples of doing something that seems really counterintuitive in the moment, but they're, all, but they're all pictures of trusting God. Number four is trusting God. Remember this, God always punishes his enemies. God always punishes his enemies. Why would I mention that? Well, I am guessing that perhaps you have been recently deeply hurt by someone. And let me say this, if they're an unbeliever, God will get revenge. Let me read for you Romans chapter 12. You know this passage, I'm in verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Here it is, verse 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay. If that person is an unbeliever, will you trust God enough to leave the vengeance to him? 
Now, God's timing isn't your timing, but God will get his vengeance. And can I just say, you can't improve on that. And if the person that's hurt you is a believer, well, the vengeance that they deserve was nailed to the cross. It was nailed to the cross of Christ. And by the way, you and I can't improve on that either. Well, it takes us to number five, and we'll, we'll close here. But Christ is our example. You know, we need an example. Sometimes it's just like, what? I need an example of what does this look like? Christ is our example. How do I respond to difficult circumstances? How do I respond to an unknown future? How do I respond to difficult people? Christ is our example. Let's pray. Father, we conclude our time in your word this morning with hearts full of gratitude and praise for your unwavering sovereignty and boundless goodness. Lord, the salvation of your people in the book of Esther reminds us of the great salvation that we have in Christ. And Lord, just as you guided Esther and Mordecai, you watch over us with tender care and providence. Lord, your, the book of Esther reminds us of your mighty hand at work and how it orchestrates events beyond our understanding for the fulfillment of your purposes, of your promises, your glory, and for the good of your people. Lord, we thank you for your sovereignty that reigns over all creation. Lord, your sovereignty and goodness provides strength and courage to face the challenges, knowing that you're with us every step of the way. So Lord, we lift our voices in thanksgiving this morning for your word, for your spirit that guides us, for Christ who intercedes for us, and for your goodness and grace that sustains us. Lord, I pray you will help those who are here this morning to know and feel the depth and breadth of your love for us in Christ. And may our hearts overflow with gratitude for the ways that you lead and provide and protect us. Lord, we ask these things in the name of our Savior and King, Jesus. Amen.